tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hard to believe, but eight years have passed since 27,000 gallons of fuel leaked from massive underground tanks at Red Hill. No one is sure where it all went, but it's a sign, it was a sign, that not all was well at the military facility. Fast forward to 2022, the Defense Department orders the shutdown and draining of the tanks following yet another spill that got into the drinking water affecting customers on the Navy's drinking water system. 93,000 families relocated to hotels after their drinking water was unsafe. The Navy's working on how to safely empty the tanks, but still up in the air is what happens to the tanks afterwards. Former State Health Director Bruce Anderson recently penned an opinion piece for the Star Advertiser suggesting the tanks be used to store fresh, clean drinking water. He first laid eyes on the tanks while on a tour with then-Honolulu Mayor Jeremy Harris back in the 1990s. I remember being awestruck by the size and the magnitude of those tanks. They were We only went through one of them, but to have... 20 tanks that are as large as those tanks were uh, was truly uh, an amazing sight. I learned a lot about the history of the tanks at that time, and and it seemed that the Navy was uh, uh, being reasonably careful, in fact, very careful in, in making sure that they didn't pose a threat. Um, I don't know if that's the case today. I, I think there's been a lot of um, news, of course, about the uh, leaks and the, some of the problems they've had with the tanks. They may have been occurring in the past um, uh, with the same frequency, but um, if they were, we didn't know anything about them when I was at the health department. So we always thought it, those tanks should be replaced, but, um, but uh, of course, recently uh, with the leaks that have occurred and the contaminated drinking water, it seems that that is a much more pressing issue and, um, and it couldn't happen too soon. We tried to get the Navy to develop a plan to uh, replace those tanks back when I was at the health department 2018 and 2019. And it seemed the Navy had agreed that that would be um, prudent and they should do so, but it was never agreed as to how long that would take. And this was before we started seeing any contamination of our drinking water, but we knew that there was petroleum product in the ground and it was just a matter of time. So they were arguing it would be taking 10, 12, 15 years. In fact, I think 15 was the, the minimum amount of time they thought it would take to get the funding to relocate tanks to serve their needs, to go through the procurement process, construction, and everything else that's needed to uh, build uh, new tank fields to uh, replace the existing Red Hill tanks. And of course, closing those tanks was uh, another issue, but most of the delays were associated with building uh, new facilities to serve their, their needs. So we uh, never got past the point of their setting a time frame and developing a plan for uh, closing those tanks when I was there. But um, obviously things have changed now and they are aggressively moving in that direction. So what would you like to see done with these tanks? First, I, I think it's um, critically important that, that those tanks be de decommissioned as uh, fuel storage tanks. In my view, it was always a huge threat to our drinking water, the most important uh, water source we have here on Oahu. And it really was just a question of time until we started seeing problems associated with some of the leaks and so forth. They need to be um, emptied, of course, as soon as possible. I don't think they can be repaired and, and maintained as they are. Maybe argued that they could be could last forever, like the Golden Gate Bridge. They could go in and patch up uh, holes and reweld themes and do the things that they thought was necessary. But I, I don't think anyone really believed that they could do that in perpetuity. It was really just a, a question of time, and they were trying to hang on as long as they could. But I, I'm thinking the um, tanks should be decommissioned. But there is an option that uh, I don't hear anyone talking about, and that would be to use the tanks to store drinking water for emergency purposes. All those tanks were filled with water at one point. They were pressure tested with water. They certainly can hold probably almost any fluid reasonably well. But the nice thing about holding drinking water, clear, clean drinking water, is that um, if there was a leak, it would simply recharge the aquifer down below and wouldn't pose any threat. Of course, one of the keys there would be to clean the tanks and the distribution system to assure that uh, there isn't any residual fuel or oil that might be um, entrained in the water that would be um, contaminated the resources there. But the truth is, uh, if there is water, uh, oil in the soil and, and in the surrounding area, it's going to move down into the groundwater eventually, regardless of whether there's water in the tanks or, or not. That would happen naturally, and, and water would be percolating through, uh, through the soil from rainfall and springs and things in the area. But if you fill those tanks with water, first of all, it would uh, be, a, I think, a valuable asset. We'd have you know, hundreds of millions of gallons of water available 
for emergencies should that be needed. And um, and uh, I hate to say it, but it would be uh, also very difficult for the Navy to pump the water out and, and use the tanks for something else. I think everyone's afraid that the Navy is going to start reusing those tanks, even if they empty the tanks for fuel or some other potentially hazardous material. So water water would be um, a way to help to ensure the tanks weren't used for other purposes. Well, we did hear the Navy say that, you know, one of the options would be somehow using them in a hydroelectric capacity. Yeah, well, first of all, the tanks aren't, aren't high enough to really get a good head. They're less than 100 feet above sea level, I think, at the, at the low point in the tank. So I don't know that you'd get enough energy generated from the water to make that work. Further, for the uh, energy uh, storage concepts I've seen, you'd have to fill, defill, empty, fill, empty the tanks because that's how it, how it would work. You'd have a lot of um, continuous use of those tanks. And those tanks weren't designed to be uh, filled and emptied every every few days or whatever it would be. I don't think they could structurally take that that stress. So I, I think that was a, a, an interesting concept, but uh, from a practical standpoint, I don't think they could generate enough electricity to make it worthwhile. And further, I don't know the tanks would be able to uh, be used for that purpose. One other thing you need to think about is when you have an energy system like that, you have to put the water somewhere. Typically, it's it's recycled. You you store it at a lower elevation and then repump it up to a, a higher elevation, and then and then that uh, then is released and then uh, drives turbines that produce the power. So it works in situations where you have low cost power that you can use to pump the water up, and then when you release the water, of course, you're generating some power, but there's no energy savings if you're not able to use unused power to pump the water back up into the storage facilities. In this case, it would be the tanks. Hawaii has a very expensive power. This might work if we had geothermal or hydroelectric power or something else where during off hours you could use that excess power to, to pump the water up and store it, but it probably isn't a practical solution for Hawaii where at least on Oahu, we don't have that. On the Big Island, uh, one of the Senator Matsuru actually proposed this back 30 years ago that geothermal could be used for energy storage. And he, his grand concept, one of the reasons why he was behind geothermal then, was that you'd be able to pump water up to reservoirs on top of Mauna Kea, and, and, and they would be then able to release water and during periods of time when you needed power, need more power, and, and uh, that way you could fully utilize that resource. But again, getting back to our situation on Oahu, it's most of the power here is uh, renewable energy and, and of course, fossil fuels, and that's very expensive. So I don't think uh, you'd be able to pump the water up to a reservoir like the tanks and then generate enough power to make that work. We have been talking with former State Health Director Bruce Anderson about his idea to reuse the underground tanks at Red Hill. It's basically to fill them with water for emergency use. We will continue our conversation with him right after a short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. European ski vacation? Not looking so good this year. And it's a lovely little quiet French resort, and there is no snow. (laughs) Literally, you you can't ski here. There's just grass. Record temperatures have Europeans reckoning with a very warm future. Next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. You're tuned with the 
conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Let's go back to our interview with Bruce Anderson, former state health director. Anderson, who's a biologist by training, also served on the Landfill Selection Commission twice. He talked about continuing to use the Waimanalo Gulch landfill as a solid waste dump site for the foreseeable future. The city's efforts to recommend a replacement site were stymied recently after lawmakers put restrictions on where a new site could go and after the Board of Water Supply gave a thumbs down on all of the potential sites on the list. The threat to our aquifer is top of mind. And, you know, just recently, uh, Board of Water Supply's chief engineer, Ernie Lau, said no to a number of sites potential sites for a landfill because they would be too close to the aquifer. There has been some discussion about asking the military if they might have some land that would be appropriate to site a landfill. Uh, But you had experience because you were on the landfill commission at one time. Yeah, I made the mistake of agreeing to uh, to serve on that commission actually twice. In both cases, a number of sites were identified, including some military sites, and, and it came back to Waimanalo Gulch being the most environmentally acceptable site on the island of Oahu. It was uh, relatively dry. There was the activities around the landfill, at least when it was constructed, were not in direct conflict. Uh, but most important, there wasn't any drinking water in that area that would have been threatened by the landfill. And that continues today, as far as I know. There, haven't, there hasn't been any evidence of any leachate from the landfill affecting the drinking water uh, in the area. The landfill is all above the uh, underground ingestion control line, which um, really delineates uh, where drinking water is around the state. And uh, unfortunately, it still isn't in a situation where it is likely to threaten uh, drinking water. There are other sites around the island, of course, where a landfill wouldn't be a threat to drinking water, but uh, might impact ocean water. And that's, of course, not desirable either. There are all these restrictions now since the lawmakers passed that act a couple of years ago, you know, that eliminate conservation land and there needs to be buffers with residential areas. So there doesn't seem to be much wiggle room that the city's got at this point. There are very few sites that are suitable for that, for a landfill, and um, Waimano Gulch was, was ideal. My, my position, uh, and I think we were shared by others on the commission, was that the Waimano Gulch site should be fully utilized. It would be a shame to walk away from that, that area after, after it's been despoiled, as it has been, and not fully use it before uh, going to another site. Obviously, there are political and other issues associated with uh, continuing operations there at Waimanalo. But I, I think it would be a travesty not to not to continue to uh, to use that landfill as long as it has uh, some life ahead of it, and that is the case today. And I believe there's still room in that area for additional storage and with recycling programs and so forth. You could probably stretch out another 10, 20 years from that site. But um, I know there are political and other issues that need to be considered. But I would hope that when they look for a new landfill site, they would be finding a, uh, sites that did not. Well, obviously, they should not in- impact any drinking water sources, and that's uh, that's tough to do on our island. And is there anything else you can add just about the military sites that were considered? When we looked at most of the military sites, they were above drinking water sources. Okay. Actually, one of the getting back to the Red Hill situation, one of the, the difficulties was, and it still is, to find sites where fuel storage could could occur and not pose a threat to drinking water. So those tanks were built during World War II, and people really didn't worry too much about that. And of course, they are over Pearl Harbor Aquifer. But the truth is, most of the military sites are also over aquifers, and of course, they would be threatened if, if the uh, tank field was put into those areas. So you're typically looking at areas down closer to the coast, mm. and there are areas in, in the Pearl Harbor area where where there's no drinking water, but then you're closer to to the shoreline areas. When they build a new tank field, and that's that's the big issue I think for the Navy, they need facilities closer to the end use, which is mostly aircraft now. Back when those tanks were built, they were built to hold sea for large battleships and other ships. Now most of those big ships are nuclear powered, so the ships aren't as much of a concern, I think, as the aircraft. I think most of the fuel that's being stored in those fuel tanks is uh, Jet A or, or uh, lighter aircraft fuel that, that uh, is a long way away from uh, the nearest airport, so it has to be transferred a long, long, way, long way, and of course that poses additional risks. You would hope they'd find some use for the facility that would be positive constructive use. They, they, they are truly an engineering marvel. They're, they're, they were built at a time when um, we didn't have a lot of heavy equipment. They had a, a train under the, under the tanks where they removed soil while they were excavating the area. 
but uh, the tanks are, are, are really an, uh, an incredible feat of engineering. Yeah. And I, I would hate to see them just taken out. Uh, that's, that's, you know, thousands right. of tons of concrete and steel that would be have to, have to be relocated. And right. I would hope that you would find a better use for, uh, for those tanks uh, and, and for storing something that right. might be worth... Yeah, um, a dry storage was another idea that someone else came up with. But um, yeah, a lot of old military facilities, bunkers, and things have been used for uh, growing everything from mushrooms to uh, mm-hmm. to, of course, being used for storage. It's um, it's underground. It's protected, and and uh, it, it could be potentially very very valuable. People need to be open minded about it and try to think of how they could be used better. My thoughts on these, on simply filling with water would maybe even be temporary. You just be, you know, creating a, uh, a reservoir that could be used for emergency purposes if needed. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sure people could think of other uses that would be um, more constructive. And that was Bruce Anderson, who served as state health director and who also twice sat on the landfill selection commission. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we look back to the days where every facet of uh, citizen life was regulated by martial law. At 4.30 p.m. on December 7th, 1941, on the afternoon of the Pearl Harbor attack, the territorial governor, Joseph Poindexter, handed his administrative powers over to a military governor. That meant all civilians in Hawaii were subject to the Uniform Code of the Military Justice. Civilian courts were replaced with military tribunals, and every citizen over the age of six had to carry a personal identification card. Wardens patrolled neighborhoods to enforce a blackout between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Food and gas rationing were enforced, and alcohol was forbidden. In today's Backyard Quiz, we ask, who was the military governor of Hawaii during the outset of the U.S.'s involvement in the Second World War? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Cesspools are the subject of today's reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us to talk about the looming deadline to get thousands of property owners to switch over to something more environmentally sound. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Happy New Year. So, yeah, we've got this issue with our cesspools looming. That's right. So, um, as you know, and I'm sure a lot of the the listeners out there know this is just one of those omnipresent situations here in the islands where we have about 53 million gallons of raw sewage uh, that is seeping out and leaching into the soil and into the environment here in the islands every day and uh, so there was the latest in in a series of briefings and and hearings and and just you know um uh ways to try and fix this situation that occurred yesterday 
at the state capitol. Uh, it was an informational briefing with uh, the House and Senate Energy Committees and the Cesspool Conversion Working Group. And this is a state-appointed body that has really kind of rolled up their sleeves and, and taken a, a good look at this situation. Currently, the state has a goal, an official goal, an official deadline to convert all of the known cesspools here. That's 83,000 by the most recent uh, count. And to have those converted by the year 2050. Now, what the Cesspool Conversion Working Group proposed yesterday as, as part of its recommendations in this new report is that you basically move up that deadline for the most threatening, the, the worst of the worst cesspools, what they're dubbing Priority 1 and also Priority 2 cesspools. So the 14,000 worst cesspools this group is proposing, that we actually convert those by 2030 and the next 12,000 worst ones to convert those by 2035. That leaves about 55,000 that you would then work to convert by the original 2050 deadline. So they've basically broken this up where they try and, you know, urgently address the ones that are causing the most damage early on. And also, the, you know, the point that they were making is if you just have a, a blanket 2050 deadline, you know, everybody is just by human nature. You're gonna you're gonna wait until yeah. 2050. And Can't it's gonna do that. Use a, yeah, you're gonna have this this whole glut. You know, and the the finances that are involved in this, the costs are, are enormous. So it's really they're trying to take a more measured and tiered and, and even what they called a triage approach to this very serious situation in the islands. Yeah, and we should point out that you know this is a deadline that was set by the EPA because you know we were I think the last ones to allow construction with um, new construction with cesspools, and they said. Uh uh-uh. uh, nobody else does it anymore. You got to convert. Right. So it's it's this whole legacy that we're continuing to grapple with. Um, it's estimated it costs about two billion dollars overall for this this widespread long effort uh, to you know to fix these thousands of cesspools and convert them to either septic or some other alternative means that that includes actual treatment of the sewage. Uh, the state estimates it's currently about a billion dollars short. So this group didn't just, you know, throw out these deadlines and say good luck. They really put out a lot of recommendations in terms of seeking out federal funding, state funding, and just a lot of different uh, loan programs and, and, you know, financing mechanisms because these projects are enormously, enormously uh, expensive. Oh, yeah. I mean, tens, $20,000. I mean, who's got that money sitting around? Uh, and, and you've got to have it done. Yeah, they estimate it costs about 23000 on average, and a lot of those can, can run a lot more expensive, as I'm sure a lot of listeners can attest. So it's daunting, but they're saying it's doable. You know, we, we've got a windfall, frankly, of, of a lot of federal funding that's coming in. And they said, look at some of these new giant bills that are being passed. Let's see what the state is getting. And the Speaker of the House even said, yeah, well, that's, we'll, we'll incorporate this as we look at the lay of the land and all the federal funding that we're getting. Uh, we're going to see how cesspools fits into to our new federal funds. Yeah, and there's a lot of opportunity for uh, jobs uh, in order to get this work done. So, yeah, if we want something else to uh, keep our economy chugging, you know, this could be one of them. <laughs> but thank Every you. Every crisis has an opportunity. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island, presenting Opera Loha. The operatic trio performs classic arias, songs composed by Queen Liliuokalani, and more January 14th. KahiluTheater.org. Psychologist Ken Sheldon tried to make it as a musician in his 20s. I remember walking in the rain, it was Seattle, wondering what to do next, and coming to the decision that this is probably not going to give me a way to make a living and that I needed to get serious about maybe something else. 
How to Figure Out What You Want, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin has shown remarkable improvement over the last 24 hours, according to the team. Hamlin's agent says he's awake, and while doctors say he's still critically ill, the 24-year-old has demonstrated that he appears to be neurologically intact. Hamlin collapsed after his start stopped after making a tackle during a game on Monday night. In the mind of the average fan, cardiac arrest is not something typically linked with a sport like football, but should more athletes in contact sports be aware of the risk? The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Dr. David Singh, the director of the Heart Rhythm Institute at the Queens Medical Center. After what we saw happen to DeMar Hamilton on Monday night, I think one of the first questions that popped into the average fan's mind was, how can a professional athlete in great physical condition suffer cardiac arrest? Can you talk about how an athlete that seems to be in really good health, how they would be susceptible to something like that? Yeah, it's a question, I think, on a lot of people's minds. and. The short answer is that sometimes you just don't know until something like this happens. And it, when it happens, it's obviously really dramatic and unexpected. There are a few reasons for this. Now, there, there are many people, you know, this uh, gentleman that was affected, for example, and many others were playing sports probably from a very young age. So why it happened at this, this particular moment is a, still a bit of a mystery. There are a lot of diseases of the heart. Uh, they're usually primary electrical diseases that predispose people to having what we call an arrhythmia, meaning the heart goes out of rhythm. And some of these arrhythmias can be fatal. In particular, one condition called ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. These are both rhythms that if patients are in it and they don't get quick defibrillation, they can die. And sometimes, you know, patients have this disorder and they're born with it and it's just never picked up. And that, that is sadly the case, you know, even though they may be seeing a pediatrician and uh, later on, you know, adult uh, doctor, it may just not be noticed. I recently saw, you know, a, a young doctor who was born with a heart condition, an electrical disorder, and she's a doctor. And she presented at 27 years old with a pretty major uh, electrical disorder. So, you know, sometimes it's just not picked up. And even though these athletes go through a lot of rigorous training, they may have a disease that is silent until it declares itself. So I don't think I would regard this as necessarily a failure of, of the system. These d diseases can be sometimes very difficult to pick up or it, uh, sometimes they're impossible to pick up until something like this happens. I think that was something that popped into my mind when I first heard about what happened and I, I first started seeing the news come out was that he must have had some sort of undiagnosed underlying condition. Is there an average age when it becomes easier to pick up on something like this? Can it be picked up pretty early if, if people are looking for it? Right. It's a, it's a difficult question. The short answer is it really depends on the disease. Many uh, people are maybe familiar with the term EKG or ECG. That's just basically a tool that we use in medicine to look at one point in time at what the electrical activity of the heart is. And it's ind indispensable and, and critical tool for electrophysiologists. A lot of these diseases could be picked up on an EKG. So I'll just throw out one term. There's a, there's a condition called WPW. Patients are born with this. There's 0.1 to 0.3% chance of someone dying from this condition. If you do an EKG on someone, you know, uh, pretty much as soon as they're born or shortly thereafter, oftentimes you'll pick up on it at that point. The problem is it's not necessarily indicated for people to get EKGs until much later in life. And so, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for, for children and teenagers to have this condition, and we just don't know about it. But had they gotten an EKG earlier on, we would have picked up on it. Now, we don't really know what happened to this football player. There's a lot of speculation, and a lot of us think he may have had a condition known as commodio cordis, and that's a condition that there's no indication. There's nothing that you could do, no testing that you could do cardiac-wise that would detect this condition. The way that it's diagnosed 
diagnosed, unfortunately, is, you know, when someone has forced trauma to the chest, they go into a fatal rhythm. But there's really no testing that could pick up on it. So unfortunately, you know, some of these, these conditions we can pick up on earlier in life with various testing, but some you don't know until they present with one of these really dreadful events. Who is generally at risk for cardiac arrest in general? Is it people who are more sedentary? Is there equal amount of risk for people that are active or that are professional athletes? Well, I think if, if, if it's okay, I mean, I think it'd be worth just defining what we mean when we, as cardiologists, what we mean by cardiac arrest, because it's a term that, you know, gets used a lot. But there are different reasons why the heart stops. I mean, cardiac arrest means the heart stops. And when an electrophysiologist talks about the term like sudden death, we're referring specifically to the heart stopping because of an arrhythmia, because the heart goes into a fatal heart rhythm. That's different than a heart attack. Right, so a lot of people uh, hear about heart attacks. Heart attacks are really due to a condition where the the blood supply to the heart is cut off, and that will subsequently lead to a fatal arrhythmia, which leads to death. So, if we're talking about uh, cardiac arrest, the most common cause of it is actually a heart attack, and the most people that have heart attacks are adults, uh, you know, usually after the age of 50, although it can happen earlier. And it's far and away the most common cause of cardiac arrest in the world. So, uh, you know, all the things that you hear from your doctors about living a healthy lifestyle, exercising, controlling your diabetes or preventing it, taking your blood pressure medicine, all of those things are going to impact your likelihood of having a cardiac arrest from a heart attack. There are a whole other category. If we're talking about younger people, the cause of those uh, cardiac arrest really does shift, and there are a whole host of inherited conditions that can lead to cardiac arrest. And these conditions, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are really due to inherited disorders. So there's nothing that someone can really do in that case to to, to prevent this. And so that's why these events are really so shocking is because, you know, by many accounts, a lot of these patients that that present this way are, you know, the sort of banner of health. They look, they're in incredible health. We hear a lot about the athletes, you know, that have these events because they're quite sensational. Sometimes they're professional athletes and so there's a lot of press. But, you know, a lot of these things happen outside of the exercise arena. And so uh, we just don't necessarily hear about them as often. So uh, the final thing I'll say about this is there are certain conditions, when I were talking about these inherited conditions, where exercise does tend to bring them on. So there's some conditions where if you're engaging in vigorous physical activity, you're more likely to go into uh, one of these arrhythmias if you have the condition. That's not always the case, but certainly that's why we we may see, in some instances, athletes collapsing on the field, as we as we did just recently. Thanks for clarifying that. I think a lot of people kind of use cardiac arrest and heart attack interchangeably, but I know that they're two different conditions. And then when most people think about on-the-field football injuries, they think about concussions, they think about broken bones and torn muscles, something like a, a cardiac-related injury seems to happen less in contact sports and more in combat sports like boxing or mixed martial arts, at least from the outside. Should more athletes and parents of young athletes be aware of the potential of suffering cardiac-related injuries if they are involved in contact sports like football, like hockey? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the million-dollar question. Um, you know, it, it again, it really depends on the condition. I mean, the most common condition, at least in the U.S., so this varies worldwide, but the most common heart-related condition that causes sudden death in young people is a condition known as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You'll see this on the basketball court. There's many instances of basketball players, you know, falling out and some having to be resuscitated because of that condition. So in that case, it really doesn't have to do with contact. It's just, you know, the exertion and the vigorous exercise that does it. The contact issue is a fascinating one, and that's why this particular case recently is really causing a lot of buzz in our community because, again, it's speculative, but we, we think that it may be related to a condition named commodio cordis where basically any contact to the chest at a perfectly timed interval can cause a fatal arrhythmia. 
it's really, really rare. I mean, I think that's really one thing that people have to realize is, although this is, you know, obviously very scary and very tragic in many ways, it's such a rare thing. And for this particular condition, only about 200 cases have been reported since the mid-1990s. So the question is, is, you know, should you be worried about your kids playing contact sports? Well, I mean, I guess. I mean, there are lots of things that can happen with contact sports, as you mentioned. But for this condition in particular, it's such a rare event. I'm not sure that, you know, that would necessarily be a factor to consider if you feel that there are other benefits from playing sports like these for your children. And the other thing is, you know, it's not necessarily preventable. So we don't really have good data on whether, you know, wearing chest protectors or other kinds of things maybe might prevent this kind of thing. So I, I think, you know, it, it's a tough decision, and it, and it obviously is, is quite provocative uh, when we see something like this. But given the rarity of this kind of outcome, I, I'm not sure that it plays such a big role. I think that was a question on the mind of a lot of parents of young athletes when yeah. it came to the risk of sports and contact sports. And, and my wife is a is a nurse and my son is a medic in the Army, and they both felt like just happened to be, you know, unlucky timing. Yeah, again, uh, you know, we'll probably hopefully know more, you know, as, as the days and weeks go on about what happened. Many of us in the electrophysiological community feel that this is probably most consistent with the cordis, but we won't really know until we have more information. I've been an electrophysiologist for 11 years, and 11 years here in Hawaii, I've seen one case of this, and then that particular case was a young man who was jumping off the rock at Waimea, and he belly flopped, and that resulted in, you know, basically trauma to his chest wall, a similar kind of thing. And he immediately went into cardiac arrest and was saved by by the lifeguards. So you know, again, I think you're right. If this if this turns out to be due to commodio cordis, it's extremely rare. And you're absolutely right. It has everything to do with timing and and, and particularly bad timing. Um, and you know, the key here and the key really for any of these diseases is rapid defibrillation. You know, having access to external defibrillators in public places saves lives. The likelihood of survival without rapid defibrillation really starts to approach zero. So, you know, I don't know the details of this particular case. I've heard various things, but clearly, you know, based on the studies that have been done in, in, in these kinds of patients, the quicker you get them defibrillated, the more likely they are to survive. Is there anything that athletes can do or we as the general public can do to reduce our risk? Is it a matter of living a healthy lifestyle? Is it a matter of getting screened early and frequently? I venture to say a lot of athletes are, are pretty healthy to begin with. Obviously, you know, maintaining a healthy lifestyle only increases your chances of not having these kinds of events. But even if you do live a healthy lifestyle, if you're born with a particular disorder, it may not actually, you know, have much impact. The screening question is a very controversial one. And, and when we're talking about screening here, really, uh, the focus would be on EKG screening. So, for example, in some countries in Europe, they do EKG screening on all athletes, I believe, including high school students. We don't do that in the United States. And there are many arguments, you know, screening in and of itself is a, is a complex issue. And, and so there, there are reasons why we don't do EKG screening in the U.S. But there may be uh, room for some conversation here about whether elite athletes are, you know, other athletes in high school. I don't think the NCAA, as I, as I recall, I don't think NCAA actually does EKG screening on their athletes. I may have that wrong. But, uh, you know, it's clearly not something that we do across the board. So one thing to, to think about is that because not all, but some of these life-threatening disorders would be picked up on EKG screening, it might be something to think about. Over the years, I participated in volunteer EKG screening in various states. And, and we, what we do is we just, you know, set up a day and, and high school students or other people can come in and basically get their first EKG. And invariably, you know, we'll pick up one or two patients who, who have a disease, an electrical disease that they didn't know about. So there's some argument to be made that maybe that's something to, to think about for the future. Thank you so much, Dr. Singh. I really appreciate you talking to me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was a cardio-electrophysiologist, Dr. David Singh, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the risk of cardiac arrest among athletes.
physical health of professional athletes back in the headlines, we're taking the time to shine a light on their mental health as well. Being a high-profile athlete can come with intense pressures from owners, families, and fans. After the passing of former University of Hawaii quarterback Colt Brennan in 2021, questions continue to be raised about how high-profile athletes can deal with those high expectations. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the local sports psychology consultant and former NFL player Jesse Sapolu last year to discuss the issue. Here's a rebroadcast of that interview. Second and short, Brennan to throw again, far side. It is caught by Grice Mullen for a touchdown. Brennan throws, that is complete to Ross Dickerson, leaping for the end zone, touchdown. Brennan, complete to Bess, touchdown Hawaii. 2007 was a record-setting year for University of Hawaii quarterback Colt Brennan. The Rainbow Warriors finished the regular season undefeated, ranked 10th in the nation, and earned a berth to the Sugar Bowl. His star was on the rise. But after a 41-10 loss in the bowl game, his athletic career never rebounded. In 2010, he was involved in a car crash on the Big Island, which took the life of one person and left him with a traumatic brain injury. And in the years that followed, he was arrested several times for various offenses. How someone so beloved and celebrated could fall in such hard times may never be fully understood. But I was curious as to how the pressures and expectations that come with being a high-profile athlete can affect them. I called sports psychology consultant Daryl Oshiro to get his perspective. The biggest challenge with expectation is what society has created for the professional athlete. And what I mean by that is unless you perform, you're, you're not worth anything. But what, what makes it really interesting is the fact that if you look at how much a professional athlete makes, it's an amazing amount. But by the same token, because it's such a big amount, once you get there, it's almost like, like a drug. You want that, I want to make this kind of money. And then all of a sudden, you feel like you have to make this kind of money. And then it becomes like, okay... I can't live without this. I got to keep going and I got to keep going. But the challenge with expectations is you can control that. If another person has a high expectation on you, you can choose whether to accept that and use it as a motivation or just say, you know what? I need to be me. I need to be the best gal I can be. And if I can do that, then it's all good. But because we start living for other people's expectations and trying to control that, it makes it even more difficult. Do you think with all the different kinds of personalities that people have when they go into athletics, do you think there are people out there that are a little bit more predisposed to succumbing to pressure and expectation? Do you think there's a type out there that has to be especially aware when they get into sports? Well, to be honest, I think this generation is all in danger of falling into that trap. And the reason why is because of social media. Every day they can read about who said what about them. And that in itself can create negativity. That in itself can create pressure. That in itself can create a destructive mindset. Instead of going, you know what, I need to just control what I can control and go out there and do the best I can to prepare, not only physically but mentally, for this competition. And once it's done, it's done. I'm going to let it go and then continue to prepare for the next opportunity. Then it becomes a lot simpler. But once you start focusing on what the media is saying, what other people are saying, it just makes it harder. And that's that's the biggest challenge because everyone's comparing themselves to somebody else. Back in the day when there wasn't such a thing as the Internet or, you know, getting information from all these different sources, it was a lot easier. So because it's gotten to the point where there's so much information out there, I don't know how much of it is true or how much of it is just things to generate a story it makes it a little harder. And that's why people fall into these traps. There's no question the internet and social media has had a significant impact on our lives, and they impact us all in different ways. I had the opportunity to talk to Jesse Sapolu, who played football at the University of Hawaii from 1979 to 1982. He also played for over a decade with the San Francisco 49ers and is one of the co-founders of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. He gave me his thoughts on how the internet and social media impacts athletes today. Well, 
those advantages in that even the marginal players people know about, you know, because of social media. Everybody has access to some type of media. But the downside to that is people can call for you being cut because they have their own individual opinion. You know, mm-hmm. back when I played, but you don't hear about the opinion of every individual, right? Mm-hmm. Like now, you know, if someone like a Marcus Mariota, if he has a bad game, you're going to hear thousands of people with their own opinion saying he might not be the right guy or Tua might not be the right guy, just using our kids as an example. Those type of things you never heard before because people didn't have access to share their their individual opinions. Now, now they do. So it brings a lot of pressure. And I think that's the downside of having social media. People are not as patient, but that's the world we live in right now. So how can a professional athlete manage the pressures and expectations in a healthy way? I asked Jesse how he managed them during his career, whether he relied on his family or inner circle or sought professional help. Not really. I, I always reach back to my Samoan upbringing, my, my upbringing in Hawaii. You know, be humble, but you got to be tough as nails. I think the advantage that I had, too, is that I came in as an 11th round draft choice, and I, I felt like I was better than people that they chose way before me. So I came in my rookie year to prove a point. I think that took away some of the nervousness, mm-hmm. you know, because I was the underdog, and I wanted I wanted to buck all of the odds that was against me. And I think that was an advantage for me because it took away some of the nerves. I know that you're one of the founders of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. And I imagine that you interact with a lot of the inductees and the the young kids that you're looking at. I know you guys have a collegiate football player of the year. Is there an opportunity there for you to talk to some of the younger guys, mentor them a little bit? And if there is, what kind of advice do you give them? We remind them that there were people that broke that door down before them to have that opportunity. I remind them that when I played, there was only six of us. Now we're close to 100 NFL Polynesian players. We're close to 1,000 in college in all levels. So I, I want them to understand that despite the fact that I won four Super Bowls, that the foundation of how I carried myself is, is really my upbringing as a Polynesian kid, which is your humble, humility is big, be respectful of your elders. It's because of the root and foundation of your upbringing, you know, the Polynesian way. And that's culture is very, very important. Faith is important. And that's what we're rooted on. And and hopefully with these kids making, you know, 50, 60, 70 million dollars during their contracts, that it doesn't change them in that in that way. While there are thousands of professional athletes in the world today, there are hundreds of thousands more children, teenagers, and young adults competing in sports and chasing a dream of being able to do what they love professionally. How do parents put their kids on a path to be able to deal with pressure and expectation? What do they tell their kids? Here's Daryl Oshiro again. You know what? Just be the best person you can be today. And tomorrow be a better person than you were yesterday. And keep working on that. Keep driving. Keep staying motivated be the best person you can be. And if you do that, then you can live a happy and amazing life. So with all the potential for external distractions and pitfalls, what's the most important thing an athlete can do to stay on the right path? Is it having a good support system or inner circle? Is it meeting regularly with a mentor or coach or counselor? What, what, What do you think is the most important thing they can do? I think all athletes have several options. What I tell athletes is if they can develop a good support group, that would be huge. But that's kind of difficult because there's not too many coaches out there that are going to be that, you know what, just go out there, do the best you can, and it's okay. Regardless of the outcome, it's okay. There's very few individuals out there that can be that kind of support. So what I tell athletes is, Number one, you have to be your own best friend, someone that you can trust, someone that's always there to say, dude, you did a good job today, regardless of the outcome. Tomorrow's another day. Let's continue to work hard. Biggest challenge with that, instead of having our best friend in our head, we have our worst enemy. And that guy is created by society. 
I tell people, you want to live an amazing life, you need to be in a less than 1%. You need to be thinking what everyone else is not thinking. If you feel something negative, ask yourself, is this how most people would respond? And if the answer is yes, then you need to change it. Why? Because the less than 1% of the people out there that are successful are doing things differently. Sure, they still make mistakes, but they don't hang on to it. They let it go. They move on. That's how you live amazing. That was a former San Francisco 49er Jesse Sapolo and sports psychologist consultant Daryl Oshiro talking with our Russell Subiano. Time for your backyard quiz answer. We look back at the days when martial law was in effect in Hawaii. From December 1941 to October 1944, the islands were an armed camp with Iolani Palace barricaded and surrounded by trenches and blackout wardens patrolling the streets. News media and mail were censored, business hours restricted, and strict rationing enforced for food and gasoline. The chief enforcer was the military governor. The laws were known as general orders, and there were military uh, military tribunals, not courts, with no right of appeal. The island's Japanese population was especially targeted, and many were arrested on suspicion of spying for the enemy, but no one was ever convicted. For the answer to today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you who took power following the Pearl Harbor attack. The man in charge, in lieu of the governor, was Lieutenant General William Short. But we stumped you on that one. No winners today. Uh, but that's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hoypublicradio.org. Well, that's it for us today. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear from the new head of the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can find the conversation podcast online or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.